Okay, let's have one more prayer. See how this goes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, for this wonderful fellowship, for this food. We ask your blessing on all who are gathered here, on the people of Grace Anglican Church. Most of all, we ask for you to open our ears and our hearts to the truth of what you have to say to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. So when I started out last night, I started pointing out some odd kind of deficiencies, limitations in the modern view of a human being. We're conceived as kind of isolated choosers so that relations to other people, to other creatures, don't matter very much. The body often doesn't matter very much. At best, it is something to be conquered or perhaps hacked in modern parlance. Um, And God matters only to the extent that he's kept far enough away to give me room or he is a convenient, and by convenient I mean my convenience, boost to whatever project I have set for myself. And we call this supposed distance or absence of God in which his intervention is only on my terms and to boost the direction I think I should be going. Uh, We call this freedom because we worry that if God got any closer, then we would be what? Puppets. Of course, this is actually a very strange way to think because, again, it assumes that there naturally should be some vast gulf between ourselves and God. But in fact, Kermit the Frog does not worry about the hand up inside of him because it isn't alien to him. It's part of what he is. Take away that hand and he's just felt. Take away the presence of God, the imminent presence of God in us and in all things, and there aren't even things. So as I said before, there's a very long tradition, the same tradition basically as that which distinguishes image from likeness, as I said earlier today, which sees image of God as being this freedom to choose, to reason, to love, all three together, as a kind of image of the Trinity in our mind, in our soul. And this needs God to keep a certain kind of distance so choices can be made so that I can grow in likeness to God by doing things, love, so that I can think my way towards him. And in so doing, this tends to forget that the whole human is called image of God. Rather than the term being defined, it's just applied to the, to the human being, male and female, without much limitation. But this also forgets much more. It forgets not only the body, but it forgets the world. It forgets other creatures. All of these things don't seem to matter in this way of thinking, not very much. Genesis 1 gave us a place and 
other inhabitants and a role, an office of sorts. And these are all earthly things. Our place is on the earth with other creatures. Our office is in relation to those creatures. The trouble with thinking your way into the likeness of God is it's almost always an attempt to sort of lift yourself often inward and upward out of humanity towards God up in heaven. But in the end, we aren't going to find God up in heaven because he hasn't wanted us to find him there. He came to earth so we would find him here. And so we should, instead of sort of being directed upwards, actually, be pressed outwards into these relations in the world. Now, we can see how this goes sour. This is from Jeremiah 8, 7. Even the stork in the heavens, that is just the sky, knows its times. Remember when I said times, these are loaded words. They have to do with ritual, with the liturgical calendar, with seasons, with, um, with worship. Even the stork in the heavens knows its times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane observe the time of their coming in. Again, this is, this is worship language. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Jeremiah speaks here to Israel as a priestly nation. One can imagine that Israel as a priestly nation was supposed to re-communicate that priesthood to humanity. What, after all, is the point of there being a priestly nation in the midst of the pagan nations? And all of these prophecies about how the nations then will one day sit in, in relation to this priestly Israel and will come streaming in with their gifts, their offerings to God. I... A mission that quite clearly Israel fails at totally. Likewise, it's not incidental that Hebrews refers to Jesus as our great high priest. Or that in John, Jesus interacts so much with the various Jewish festivals. I don't think I mentioned that. But this is an important thing to realize, particularly about the Gospel of John. Uh, the other Gospels, Jesus doesn't spend time in Jerusalem really until the very end of his life. But in John, he keeps back bouncing back into Jerusalem. And where he comes into Jerusalem is always for major festivals. Jesus is observing all of these times and seasons of Jewish life. And every time he enters back into them, he's inserting himself into the middle of these things as sort of the point of whatever's going on. And so there is a conflict Something of a natural conflict between Jesus and Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, of course, Caiaphas has a role in Jesus' crucifixion, and he's the high priest there. And so you could say if Jesus is any kind of a high priest, there's a, there's a conflict. Jesus isn't a priest by birth, right? He doesn't belong to that stock within Israel. Uh, the, the, the New Testament has to deal with this fact by, by saying, well, Jesus is not by descent from Aaron a Jewish priest. Hebrews calls him a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek being this figure from way back in Genesis, who's this priest king of Salem, Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. Uh, which is to say, Jesus is some kind of royal priest of a sort that's different and more ancient even than the priesthood of Aaron. But there's more than that, of course, because Jesus is the Messiah. At least we know him that way. 
But there was already in Jerusalem at that time one other who could claim the title Messiah. Because the high priest really was God's own anointed high priest. Anointed is what Messiah means. Uh, that's a, that's a, that was a, a legitimate claim the, of, 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 of the Sadducees and those in the priestly class. They would have totally understood the high priest to properly claim at least some aspect of the title of Messiah. Not king of Israel, but certainly the high priest in the line of Aaron. Jesus' odd priestly and kingly messiahship is a great challenge to that. There's this conflict between the priesthood in Jerusalem and this strange priesthood of Jesus. So Jeremiah's accusation against Israel, what's coming out in 8-7, this line about the storks and the turtle doves and the swallows and the cranes, they know the times of their coming in. They know the seasons but my people don't know the judgment of the Lord. This is interesting. It means the birds know the festivals. The birds know the worship. Every creature knows the proper worship of the Lord, the times and the seasons. They all know what page of the prayer book we're on. But Israel has lost track of the liturgy or rejected it wholesale. Everyone knows what is going on but the high priest. And worst of all, apparently, is the high priest there in Jerusalem. This is the very beginning of Jeremiah 8. At that time, says the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven. The host of heaven being this array of heavenly beings, stars, planets, whatever which they have loved and served. This is that worship of all of your astral phenomena. Which they have followed and which they have inquired of and worshipped. Jeremiah is very explicit about this accusation. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be like dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. That's Jeremiah's ancient accusation against the priesthood of Judah. But in a strange way, it comes back in again in this conflict between Jesus and the high priest who says, after all, wouldn't it be better if one man were to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed? All of this to say there is a problem in human life, and the problem is bad worship, wrong worship. All of human life, sinful human life, is wicked worship. We think sin far too narrowly if we limit it to specific bad acts and bad inclinations. It is our faith that is bad. Faith and worship are not partial things. They don't just concern a sliver of me. They are the whole thing. They determine my entire orientation in this world. Our whole bodies, our whole selves, all of our relationships... Faith isn't a movement within the heart. It's externally oriented. It's connected to things out there. We're not image of God most of the time. At least practically we aren't. Because our faith isn't in God. 
Judah loved worshiping the stars and sun and moon, all of the heavenly bodies. They're way up there, and we're way down here. That makes them convenient to deal with. Maybe you offer something to them now and again to bend them to your will. I, I, I read a piece just today. It's something I had read an article about a little while ago. A change in scholarly opinion on certain, I would call them burial grounds, but that's not actually what they were. Well, they are that, but they're more than that. In ancient Carthage, so a city in North Africa. Um, Carthage was you know, the, the historical enemy of the Roman Empire, destroyed by them more than once, uh, and a greater city than Rome. Uh, for, for quite some time, but it was settled by the Phoenicians who are Semitic-speaking people, so speaking the language similar to Hebrew, originally from the coast, just kind of north, go north from Israel up to, you know, Lebanon, Syria. There they are. That's the land of the Phoenicians. These are peoples whom Israel and Judah had constant dealings with. Culturally very similar. They're close kin. And the Phoenicians established colonies all over the Mediterranean. And what this article was about was um, reinterpretation of, of what are called tophets. And so it used to be, the old histories used to say, because the Greeks and the Romans said, well, the Carthaginians practiced an old, well, it's related to practice in the Middle East, practices of child sacrifice. When things are going really badly, how do you get the God's attention so that you could get things on the right track again? And in, for most of the 20th century, historians said, that's got to be exaggerated. We don't really think it's that way. There's got to be other ways of interpreting this evidence. This is probably just a slander thrown by the Greeks and Romans, you know. Maybe it's just kind of racist stuff. Big old piece from... Uh, Scholars working out of Oxford saying, yeah, we've examined all of these places. It makes no sense that there's whole burial grounds in Carthage filled just with children and infants. And that there are thanksgivings to the gods for hearing our prayer at every single one of these tombs. Why would you say thanks for hearing our prayer if that wasn't a sacrifice? This is the horror of what human worship actually becomes. Uh, I bring up something as awful as child sacrifice because it, at bottom, this is what every human religion always veers towards in the end. Some kind of human sacrifice. It isn't something that happened once in a while only in the most evil places and in the most wicked people. If you look at cultures around the world in, under extreme conditions, under the worst pressures, in one way or another, religiously, they all turn to sacrificing each other. The gods are far away and very distant, but once in a while when you really need them, you just give them something really big and then they do it. Of course, Christians have always known this. We've always known this because of some of the two of the most terrifying stories in the entire Bible. One of them is Abraham commanded to sacrifice his son. And then God saying, no, don't. God will provide the ram. And then the second is God giving his own son. 
Of course, in that case, we were quite willing to go through with the sacrifice. This is what high priest means. This is what Caiaphas means. It's better for one man to die than for the nation to be destroyed. So in this, we hate God and we hate his creation. That's what bad worship means. And so our place in creation comes entirely out of joint. Israel, according to Jeremiah, they're not showing true faith to the nations. They're at war with themselves. They're at war with their neighbors. This is where we find ourselves. We're at war with creation. Everything becomes a struggle, increasingly violent. It becomes just another example of the bloody struggle that underlies creation in the ancient Near Eastern mindset. Genesis 1, creation is orderly and peaceful and it's good. In the Enuma Elish, in this myth of the combat of Marduk and Tiamat, creation at its core is a violent struggle. It's an ugly battle. And any scrap of good is only achieved by bloodshed and violence. And it never gets better than that. There's no happy ending. God, the true God, wants nothing to do with that nonsense. This isn't what he made us for. So, I have been spending some time in Martin Luther's Genesis lectures. His Genesis lectures are, well, sort of an interesting thing. If you were a student at the University of Wittenberg studying theology back in the first half of the 16th century, you didn't have a large course catalog to select from. You didn't have different kinds of classes. You had one kind of class. It was, you'll go here, Dr. Luther's lectures, he'll be lecturing on some book of the Bible, and he'll go until he's finished with it. And in the course of that, he'll talk about whatever he wants to talk about. This is how you're going to learn all the theology he's going to teach you. Philip Melanchthon did the same thing. This is how it works. It worked. They just, they just kind of lectured through stuff. Luther spent the last 10 years of his career just lecturing through Genesis. <laughs> Think about that. You could have gone to that university, studied theology, and all you got for your entire time was hearing Luther cover. You're like, oh yeah, you know, what did you get? You know, and, you know, you were there for three years, and I heard Luther cover about 16 chapters of Genesis. <laughs> it's a very odd way of learning theology, but it means it's very digressive. You just go down all these rabbit holes into all this myriad of things. So he covers a lot of ground in his Genesis lectures. But he spends a lot of time very early on in the course when this image of God thing comes up, trying to grapple with the tradition around image of God. And he's very critical of it. He's very critical of these attempts to give it a peculiar definition and then identify the piece of humanity that it refers to. And he basically says, forget trying to define it. It has to mean the whole person somehow, not some part we can identify. And this is where he says we have it in, in name only. But then he says more, and it sounds just unbelievably weird. And, 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 and people have very frequently had a hard time figuring out what, why he would go on this flight of fancy he goes into. He says, I am convinced that before the fall, and here I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, but pretty closely, that Adam had eyesight like an eagle 
and strength so that he could handle bears as if they were puppies. <laughs> what? What on earth is he talking about, right? Why would he say things like that? Uh, and, and then he goes on, it, it, and now that, that, that's, it's, it's weird, goofy speculation, but I want to point up a couple of things about it. The first is, note the physicality of this description. He's at least trying to describe a humanity that works in a, in a somewhat different way. But it's not just physical, it's also animal. He keeps the human being together with the other creatures on day six of creation. We do have something in common with them. We're the only ones called image of God. That's human uniqueness. But in terms of our various capacities, they're a lot like those of the animals. Sometimes worse, sometimes better. And he keeps us linked there. Then he does some more odd speculation. So what this does, it kind of keeps the image of God, and it gives Adam a place with other creatures. And it, then he starts talking about worship. And once more, it gets weird. He says that before the fall, Adam and Eve would get up in the morning, and they would worship God in the sun. Well, this sounds exactly like what Jeremiah is condemning, doesn't it? Why would he say something crazy like that? Not worship the sun, that's different, but worship God in the sun, in the various creatures he has set around them. God in the created thing. He's assuming no distance there. God is in all of these things, and we know that's true. This is the opposite of distance. This is the uncomfortable closeness of God. And again, he'd say we, they, they worshiped God by receiving every fruit of the garden. But also by staying away from the one that they were commanded not to receive. And so we get a, a sort of a pattern here. And the pattern is a kind of well, processional, if you will. Um, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Away from it to the tree of life. It's just a movement from one place to another. Not to find God here, but to find him here. And in all of the other places that he has given. Because God explicitly gives them all other things. Only this is off limits. Away from the tree of knowledge to the tree of life. And so this way they have God as the giver of all things. Even the sun. Even themselves and their bodies included. Yes, Luther goes so far as to describe marital relations between Adam and Eve as part of this worship of God. He doesn't describe it in detail. That would be odd. Not necessarily that odd for him, actually, but odd. <laughs> he takes kind of a childish delight in these things. Uh, fear, distance only comes in when they sin. We can see this happening. It emerges right there in Genesis 3. Who told you you were naked? Wait, so wait. You were afraid, so you hid? You hid from 
from, from the God who is everywhere in all things. I bet that went really well. Suddenly, Adam and Eve are in this strange place where they need God to be away from them. And every creature, therefore, becomes a terror for them. Luther quotes Leviticus 26. I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. That, he says, is the description of the human condition after the fall. There's terror, there's anxiety in all things. And isn't that true? Things that should be totally harmless and beneath us are sources of fear and worry for us. They're things that can hurt us. They're things that are possibly dangerous. It's much better to imagine that God is just not in those created things. Because if he is, oh boy, that's just too much. If he is, if he's there in the hurricane, if he's there in the earthquake, if he's there in the fire, if he's there in the late night phone call that leaves you stunned and changes your life forever, if he's there in the cancer, if he's there in the death, that's, that's too much for us. We have to flee from that. So it's much better just to say God isn't anywhere near those things. Or who knows? Who knows what he's doing? But the human image of God knows and worships God in all the places he gives himself to us. So here Luther makes a very careful distinction, and we really should learn to follow it. The issue is not where God is or isn't, because he's in everything. The issue is where is God for you? Where has he promised himself for you? Where is he safe for you? Where can you find him so that he is gracious to you? Where is the God who has promised that you shall be his forever? And he has not, for us in our current condition, promised that we can find him that way, just anywhere at all. This is the problem of paganism. This is what leads to horror and violence. The problem is that most of the time we're fumbling around in the dark, hoping that most of the time wanting God at a distance, but once in a while we need to be able to reach out and grab hold of something. And so maybe, maybe something dramatic. Maybe if I, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I make a big enough offering out of my life, maybe if I offer my own child, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that, who knows? God will hear me. There's no sure place to find him. The only way to quiet that is to actually find him someplace for certain. Where we know he is for us. In the garden that was in all things except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But it isn't so for us now. Rather, we run as if fleeing for the sword, from the sword. Uh, so, there was a movie, oh gosh, probably 15 years ago now, I couldn't tell you. We're a Herzog movie, which already puts us in weird territory, uh, called Grizzly Man, which is a documentary about a young man named Timothy Treadwell, who went up to Alaska and got really, really, really attached to grizzly bears. He thought he could live with the grizzly bears. And he did this for a while until 
times got really lean and hungry and some bears he wasn't familiar with came near and he was eaten by one of them. Uh, he and his girlfriend, actually. It's, it's pretty horrible. But what you find in Treadwell is a really interesting religious mindset that's very, very human. He's looking for God somewhere. He thought he found God in the bears. It's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's what it was. You could see he's, the man's having an almost ecstatic religious experience. And he left behind home videos of himself, you know, doing this, of getting close to them. This was that important to him. I, I had a 10 years ago or so, 10, 15 years ago, I also had a little bit of an obsession with tracking news stories about the deaths of extreme skiers. Because I realized something very strange. I saw several of them and I thought, gosh, these guys are young. And I was listening to the language used by their friends in these news stories. We all said, well, but at least he died doing something he loved. And so I started to look it up, who its famous extreme skiers were and how long they lived. And I realized more than half of these guys were dying extremely young. The death, that wasn't a bug in the system. That's how it was supposed to end up. In a really bizarre way. They were what? Almost trying to merge with the mountain. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know any other way to say it. It became a sort of a, a religious obsession. And it kills them. It devours them. But if you don't have a sure God anywhere else, what are you going to do? Maybe that's as good as anything else. So the question of where we find God's grace, God's favor, God for us and not against us. God will, where he will not eat us alive. This is pressing. Because there, where we find God for us, we also find our humanity and we find a renewed relationship to other creatures. Where we are no longer a terror to them. We find an opening into a world where we're not fearful or angry or opposed to other creatures. Where we don't need distance from God, but we can worship and enjoy him in all of these things. Functioning is precisely that human priesthood we were meant to be. We can actually hear this even in how Jesus teaches us to pray. When we pray, our Father. No, not, oh, great king off there in the universe. Our Father, it's close language. Nearby, we should mean it. Remember, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. This is not language of distance. We're not respecting the great divide between God and humanity. Our Lord teaches us to pray boldly. As if God were as close to us as the word on our lips. Our Father. So boldly that the world actually finds this shocking. Calling out to the utterly transcendent God as if that one, as if doing so were just the most ordinary, common, natural thing in the world. What, you don't have to give him anything special? You don't have to get his attention by some great work? You don't have to be anything in particular? You just call out to him, trusting that he's going to answer you? Who are you to do that? Our sin, the awful evil of it, is to push God away into heaven and to deny that he has any claim or place within my life and over my sin. We imagine him not as the loving father who gives all things without limit. but as wicked and selfish like we are. And so we 
will receive nothing from God. Everything in creation becomes either a sacrifice to appease him and then get him out of our way again, or an idol which we worship. Again, it's our faith that needs correcting. And in faith, everything, our humanity included, is right and good again. There's one more piece of Luther I'm going to give you. It's from around the same time as the Genesis lectures. It's late in his career. Uh, It's from a a weird, rather technical text called a a disputation, sort of a formal Latin argument. Uh, He actually used these, among other things, for... This this one was probably used as the examination of a PhD student. How this worked was complicated, but you construct these sort of series of theses. The 95 theses, that's a disputation. It's actually an invitation to a very formal style of debate. Luther wrote lots of these. He loved this form. But he wrote in 1536 his Disputation on Man, on the Human Being. And he has 20 theses which are basically philosophical, though theology keeps leaking into them, and 20 that are basically theological, though philosophy keeps leaking into them, and they kind of cross over in weird places. And in this, he offers the most bizarre definition of humanity I think anybody's ever put out there. Because as a definition, it sounds like nonsense. This is what he says. As Paul says in Romans 3, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Briefly summing up the definition of man, saying man is justified by faith. He takes Paul's statement, a human being is justified by faith, as the definition of a human being. Now think about that. How can that be a definition? How can you define a thing by reference to something that only seems to happen within the life of that thing? Uh, by something, reference to something that happens to it. It would be like if you asked me for a definition of ice cream and I said, ice cream is eaten by me. That's not a definition. Not the way we think of one. But let's listen again to what Luther actually does here and I think what starts to open up for us. First, this definition begins with the human as a sinner. He doesn't push that into a corner. That's really important to how we see this. We as sinners need a definition that contends with what we are in our present condition. We only know the human being as a sinner. And here, sinner isn't just a description tacked onto a human being. It's like, I'm a human who has, you know, I'm five foot six and I have brown eyes and I'm a sinner. Like this is one in a list of characteristics and you could sort of change any one of them and the others would be unaltered. Sinner is a word that completely overwhelms the word human. Two, we can't really see the human, but only the sinner. We only have that name, human. We're human in name only, in this sense. Because for the sinner, every single relation, every part of life is changed. Nothing's the same. There's a second thing. In light of that justification, right faith is precisely how the human is revealed. This is how humanity comes to light. It comes to birth. In faith, 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the faith that unites us to Jesus in his death and gives a new birth into a new life, their humanity is shown. In this faith, we are born from above. And how does a human being come to be except to be born? As he, I think, actually is correctly identifying here, humanity really is something that happens to us. It's weird, but okay. It's done to us. God does humanity to you and to me. We didn't create ourselves and we weren't just lying around waiting to be activated. God spoke and we were. This isn't just the structure of creation. God speaks and things are. This is also the structure of justification, of our salvation. God forgives and so we are forgiven. You hear the gospel and so the spirit creates faith and with it a new person, a new you. You are baptized into Christ and so reborn into his resurrection. Whereas this really oddball French philosopher suddenly put it towards the end of his career not that many years ago. The human nature is of one substance with hearing the word of God. To be human nature is hearing God's word. Because how else does any of this happen? Human nature isn't that background from before we hear God's word. Human nature is a product of God's word. What does that mean? It means that humanity, your humanity, is not waiting around for you to find it. You're not groping in the dark through all this universe looking for not only a place where you can maybe find a gracious God and maybe find your humanity. God has to give it to you. It has to be preached to you in the place where you have a gracious God. It has to be spoken, stuffed in these holes in your head. Precisely in this word of forgiveness that we learn to speak to one another. That is the priestly office implied in Genesis 1. That we are to be speakers and hearers of God's own word which gives life to the dead. It means that the one who hears the Lord's voice is the Lord's own, a walking, talking instrument by which God communicates, expresses, publishes who he is and who you are. Faith, which is your humanity, because you can't see it yet, though you will, faith is there in Jesus' word. It is finished. Well, what's finished? You. The old you, certainly. You're dead as a doornail that way. But much more the new you, the real human being, the one who lives in this Jesus, that one too is finished, complete, whole, promised, sure, secure, elect, predestined, justified, glorified, living. You become human. Creation is renewed, not just because Jesus died, but because God sent you a preacher to make a human of you. We can lament the inhumanity of our world, but that alone fixes nothing. So let's, let's talk about what you can do. Now, I got a really good question at the beginning of the day. 
And the question, because it helps to sharpen how we talk about this, the question is about, well, if we don't know what a human being is, then how do I know who to preach to? It's, 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 it's a good question because it helps us to realize how this actually works. Now, on one level, it's a very silly question because I'm not going to go start preaching to my mailbox because I can't hear me. Uh, on the other hand, it's true that people actually will get very confused over this in some ways. We do have these boundary cases. Um, we, we, we do have, right? We, 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 but, but the church has actually almost always had an answer for this. If you'll notice, in most of the history of the church, the church has not been shy about preaching. And here, by preaching, I include the word baptism. To people who aren't really verbal yet. That's okay. And we don't stop preaching to them in one way or another when they get towards the end of their life and sometimes they become nonverbal again. We keep putting these words in their ears in one way or another, very quietly. And it's amazing how long that can hold on. Any of you who visit people in nursing homes and you think, well, this, you know, gosh, she hasn't, she hasn't been able to have a conversation in two years. And you get the right word, the right sound, the right trigger, the right piece of music, and something's there. Um, sometimes it's the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes it's a bit of an old hymn. Sometimes it's singing Jesus loves you with that person. You know what these things are. These words go very, very deep in us. But more than that, sort of ahead of time, well, how will I know? <laughs> well, you don't know ahead of time. Confrontations with humanity don't work that way. We don't have a ready-made definition before the fact so that I always know before the fact what I'm going to say and who I'm going to say it to. Jesus is actually very, pretty directive with his disciples about not having to know ahead of time what you're going to say in every situation. <clears throat> right? In precise different circumstances, he's quite clear that, well, when you're called before kings and emperors, you have to give, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you have to answer to something. Don't prepare ahead of time what you will say. Why? Well, because he says the Spirit will give you words and wisdom which they can't overcome. I don't have to know ahead of time who every last human being is. I don't need a definition. I do have to trust that the one who has spoken to me in Jesus Christ will also call me through the Spirit into relationship, into confrontation with all of these people. The truth is, I don't have this as a practical problem. When I bump into a human being, I tend to know it. And we have to trust that then the Spirit will call us to speak and give us the words to say for that situation. It's, 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 it's not a thing that gets resolved at the level of a formal definition and a formula we can follow so we can, can, make, we can have all of this laid out. It's not an idea. It's something that happens in concrete situations of conflict. Of, of, of crisis, of momentary meetings on the street, of all of the little situations of daily life. 
And God will give each of you the words to address one another. But we should understand what he's actually doing in this. He's giving you the words to put a humanity back in place that is rapidly slipping away and dying. He's giving you words that can raise the dead. He's giving you words that can actually make new Christians and new people, that can give faith. So just being aware of this is helpful. Learning to see your neighbors as people whose humanity is under threat, obscured, crushed. Understanding the world doesn't know what a human being is. What that means is we can be a little bit patient with people because we don't expect them. We don't expect them to be able to make good choices that lead to the right outcome. Um, Luther's language for this was to be able to hear the preacher waiting. To hear very quietly something within that person waiting to get out that is enslaved to sin. Even the people who are enemies. People who are like, this, this, this one's a lost cause. <laughs> it's not quite that way. Underneath each of these is someone God made and whom you've been given words to address. And it's a speaking and a testing to the word that actually gives humanity. And I think we should appreciate the scope of this too. This doesn't pit head against heart. It doesn't pit mind against body. It doesn't pit faith against good works. All of these things, the full scope of a renewed human being and of a totally reordered relationship to creation, all of these proceed from the word of Christ. All things are given this way. God doesn't hold anything back. He is not miserly. He does not give limited and partial gifts. When he promises the kingdom to his children, along with that comes everything that belongs to him. So maybe, in patience in this speaking, and the humility that should come from this, knowing that we need to hear this word ourselves. We can have a little less tribalism. Partially by realizing that much that lives under the banner of Christian in this world is the same dressed up paganism that the world has. And in this world, it's always going to be so. The church is always this terrible mixed bag, absolutely filled with sinners. But the words that give eternal life, where God is sure for us, those don't fail. So I'm just going to end with this. It's from 1 John 3. I think this summarizes pretty much everything I really want to say. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. This hope, this faith purifies us. And we will be like him. Amen. Any questions? Yes. When I say that Jesus is not in heaven, I mean, yes, we can say he's at the right hand of the Father, but where is the right hand of the Father? The right hand of the Father is, the hand, is, 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 is symbolic for God's governance of creation. It is, it is here in things. To talk about Jesus in heaven is to say that he's far away, and this is not actually what he says. Um, for one, Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So if he's in heaven, he's here too. He doesn't rule earth from afar. But, but I, what, I, what I said, yes. Oh, oh, certainly. We'll see him coming. But that's, that, that, is, that is visibility. We will see him coming in the clouds. His presence is not far away. Um, what, what I was saying there specifically is we are not to see, try to seek him above. The Christian faith has, again, a, a long tradition, which of somewhat mixed lineage, of teaching people that true spirituality consists in taking leave of all that is worldly in order to seek God above. And if that's true, it makes the incarnation into total nonsense and the most misleading thing God has ever done. Because God didn't lead a tra- leave a trail of bread crumbs into heaven. He came to us and promised to be with us. And I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's all I mean by that. It means don't try to rummage around in your idea of heaven to find Jesus because he's not there. Um, he is in the manger and at his on, in his mother's lap, as it were. <laughs> he is in very earthly places. He's also, as he says, he promises to be even in, in the least of these, in, 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 in your neighbors who are poorly off, in people in prison, people who are suffering, people who are sick, all of the strange places Jesus says, well, maybe you should find me here. Right? Stop trying to look above. I think, okay, yeah, good.